This week's Undisclosed Addendum is brought to you by three great sponsors. First up, our most comfortable sponsor, Mac Weldon. We've got a new sponsor this week, Zip Recruiter. And finally, our most delicious sponsor, Blue Apron. Make sure you listen in for the spots later in the show and support our sponsors because they support us. Until then, enjoy the program. And welcome to the Undisclosed Addendum. I am John Cryer, and you are listening to the podcast about all things undisclosed. Now, if I sound a little odd this week, it's because my computer had a full-on HAL emotional breakdown, uh, and I am actually phoning it in this week. But I hope you'll just roll with it. It's going to be a great show. In episode 14 of Undisclosed, Pressure Points, the team attempted to figure out why so many witnesses in the Joey Watkins case changed their stories from when they were first interviewed to the time when they testified at trial. In physics, the term the observer effect refers to changes that the act of observation will make on a phenomena being observed. Is this the criminal justice equivalent? Were the investigators themselves changing the nature of the evidence? And with us today are two of the hosts of Undisclosed. We have Susan Simpson. She blogs at The View from LL2, and she is an associate at the Volkov Law Group. Hello, Susan. Hi, John. Glad to be back at the addendum. Yes, we've missed you. It's been too long. Uh, and we also have the uh, talented and beautiful Colin Miller. Uh, he's an associate dean and professor of law at University of South Carolina School of Law, and he blogs at Evidence Prof Blog. Hey, Colin, how you doing? I'm doing great, John. How about you? I'm doing well, uh, and I'm just hoping you enjoyed my reference in the intro there. That's the only reason I did it, to impress you. Mission accomplished. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, and also joining us today is somebody who will be familiar to people who have been following the Adnan Syed case closely. It is Amelia McDonald Perry. She is a former founding editor-in-chief of the women's blog, The Frisky. But having retired from the lady blog game, she's now a freelance crime reporter for outlets like RollingStone.com, and in addition to being an obsessive tapestry weaver. But to this crowd, she is definitely best known for scowling at Thiru Vignaraja and asking him how he sleeps at night. Well, Welcome to the show, Amelia. <laughs> Hi, I'm very excited to be here. Big question. Did he ever answer you? No, he kind of was walking away as I asked. And I was like so upset by the whole debacle that I immediately ran off to the 7-Eleven to have a good cry <laughs> and then, and then uh, proceeded about my day. But the other reporters, I think, thought I was, well, I don't know what they thought. I think they were sort of stunned. <laughs> They thought you were badass. Couldn't help it. it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know that they quite saw it the way I did. So maybe not. Maybe they thought I was rude. But that's fair. (laughs) Whatever. uh, I I imagine the way that he sleeps at night is with both literal and metaphorical blinders on. Yes, I think he sleeps quite well, unfortunately. But actually, it's interesting. Uh, You and I had a conversation for Rolling Stone where we talked about journalism and the limits of objectivity when it comes to reporting courtroom proceedings. We also talked about the limits of journalism just in general because of like space limitations and stuff like that. But what I thought was ironic was that part of the interview got cut because of space limitations. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think especially crime reporting, crime journalism is especially sort of hindered just by the very fact that, you know, early on in any sort of case, once somebody's arrested, you know, they're not going to be talking to the press. Their attorney's not going to be talking to the press. And so your only sort of story, unless you really sort of go out of your way to seek out witnesses, is going to be coming from the police or from the prosecutor's office. So you're already, you're getting sort of a one-sided narrative, which is why I tend to take the tactic of just admitting that it's very difficult to be an unbiased journalist when you're doing sort of crime reporting. And I kind of try and go out of my way to cover stories with a focus on the defendants and what their point of view is, because it's very often lost. And obviously, unfortunately, once the appearance of objectivity doesn't exist, then all sorts of questions get lobbed at journalists. So, uh, you know, obviously, we're now dealing with this in an election where politically, there's two vastly different candidates. And reporting them in the same way is almost inherently or seems to a lot of people to be inherently unfair to one of the politicians. But once objectivity is abandoned, where does journalism go? Well, it's like, you know, the idea that there are two equal and just as valid sides to every story is actually just kind of crap. Um, Sometimes they aren't equally as valid. They just aren't like, you know, when you're having a discussion about climate change, for example, there's science and then there's not science. Like, you know what I mean? And so they're not equally valid. Sorry, guys. And, you know, the way you cover certain stories, sometimes there is a more obvious sort of right side. And I think it's best for journalists to sort of be upfront about instead of sort of pretending that they're being objective or pretending that they are, you know, firmly down the middle, at least just being sort of open about where their own leanings are, but then still being committed to reporting on the case as factually as possible. Now, uh, interestingly, actually, in the Adnan Syed case, there's been a lot of recent developments. It seems like it's in the news all the time. But in the last week, the state of Maryland announced that it was going to grant parole hearings to hundreds of juvenile lifers. Colin, actually, could you get into where this came from? I mean, it seemed like a very sudden thing for the state to announce. Yeah, there was a lawsuit filed earlier this year, I think maybe April, by the ACLU of Maryland because there's a Supreme Court case out there, the Miller case, that says you can't have mandatory life without parole sentences for juveniles. And a lot of courts across the country have actually expanded that holding. And in Maryland... The deal is that essentially for the last few decades, although you have these life sentences that are technically with the possibility of parole, there is no parole being granted. And so the lawsuit by the ACLU says we have all these juveniles, almost 300 in Maryland, who have been given life sentences. And that's functionally the equivalent of life without parole because they're not getting parole since the 1990s. And in response, the state of Maryland now has said we're going to hold these parole hearings for juveniles. And the question is the ACLU is saying this is perfunctory. It's not actually going to achieve anything. And the state's saying, no, this is legitimate. We're going to give them a chance to get parole. So it'll be interesting to see over the next few months how this develops. So if I'm understanding this correctly, some people think it's just a ploy by the state. Right. That's what the ACLU has said, is that these are going to be pro forma and there's not actually going to be parole granted to any of these juvenile lifers. And it's essentially a procedure being put in place that the state is saying complies with Supreme Court precedent, but that substantively you're not actually going to see juvenile lifers in Maryland being given parole. And in Anand Syed's case, my understanding is that it would be very difficult for him anyway because he still maintains his innocence. Right, exactly. That is a functional bar to parole if you are maintaining your innocence. So 
Obviously, he's been granted the new trial. If that becomes finalized, then either they're going to drop the charges or we're going to have a new trial or there might be a plea deal. But assuming for whatever reason that that order by Judge Welch is thrown out, his maintaining his innocence is in effect a bar where he's not going to get parole because we have to have acceptance of responsibility to have a person being paroled. But I also noticed that Brian Frosch, who uh, I believe he's the state attorney general, am I correct in that? Yes. That he is actually pursuing trying to reform the bail system because he thinks it uh, discriminates against people in poverty. Uh, that seems like a very progressive stance for him, which to me signals that maybe there's hope. Maybe if we write him enough, if enough people express their opinion, that uh, maybe he might reconsider the Adnan Syed case. Yeah, and that's, in terms of Frosch's position, that actually stems out of Georgia. And it's actually a case that is relatively close to Rome, Georgia, where the Department of Justice actually filed an amicus brief saying that the whole system of bail that we have, and especially in Georgia, is unconstitutional. And Frosch's statement sort of mirrors that and says, we are, in essence, having this incarceral system for pretrial detainees charged oftentimes with relatively minor crimes. And so it seems he's responding to what's going on in Georgia. And yeah, I mean, the question is, would he be similarly responsive to calls to action in Nan's case? And that'll be interesting because if the new trial order is held up, that's very much going to be a question of, is this a case where they just drop the charges and maybe pursue other people for the murder? Or are they going to do the whole decision to bring this to trial again and try to get a conviction despite the chances of that actually occurring being pretty low. Mac Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. They promise their products will be the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants you'll ever own. As a customer, I can say from personal experience, I completely agree. I have several of their products now, and they are, in fact, the most comfortable pieces of clothing I've ever worn. Plus, Mack Weldon has some exciting news. Recently, they appointed Matthew Congdon as their creative director. Congdon is an industry expert having over 19 years' experience in menswear. And in his role, Congdon will oversee the design team and Mack Weldon's product offering, upgrading and expanding the core underwear, sock, and t-shirt lines. And now, Undisclosed listeners, you can go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code UNDISCLOSED. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. Again, that's MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code UNDISCLOSED. Now, actually, I wanted to pose this question to all of you. An interview came out recently. Sarah Koenig actually did an interview with a podcast called Criminal Injustice. And she mentioned in it that she had very mixed feelings about uh, the Adnan Syed ruling getting vacated um, because she felt that as a journalist, when she approached it, she felt that the system worked, uh, which seemed to me a stunning statement coming from somebody with, you know, more than a passing understanding of the facts of the case. Um, but I'd love to, to get your reactions on that. I can't with her <laughs> on this anymore. I'm sorry. I, I don't, I'm, that stupefies me that that's what she said about this case at this point, after everything that's come out after, I mean, I sat with her in that hearing in the media section. Well, she was there for a couple days. I don't understand how at this point that's her perspective. I feel like it's almost willfully naive. I feel like 
I don't understand. You have left me sort of speechless on this one. <laughs> so, well, <laughs> I'm just like flabbergasted by her. <laughs> yeah, my jaw dropped as well, because it seemed like even just looking at the evidence that has arisen to late, I mean, you know, it seemed like she was casting aspersions on the investigations since serial. Like she felt like it wasn't coming up with evidence of any real import. Oh, she's um, so jealous that she didn't find all the stuff <laughs> that I disclosed it. Sorry, it's true. Well, I have no idea. I'm not going to cast aspersions on her. I, I've enjoyed her reporting. And, and I understand that, you know, we talked about this, about objectivity. You know, I, I've admired to some extent her unwillingness to take a stand on this stuff because I feel like she's a journalist, you know, and that's an absolutely fair position to take. But it seems like she's ignoring the Crime Stoppers evidence. She's ignoring the clear evidence that Adnan's attorney apparently was clearly going through the ravages of a terrible disease, but also may well have been fraudulently billing him for things that she wasn't doing. Um, it's clear she wasn't pursuing witnesses. So I don't get how, then that's stuff that's clearly proven. You know, it's not a matter yeah. of conjecture. You know, much less all the troubling evidence about uh, police misconduct and all that stuff that, you know, while it hasn't been proven, it sure looks bad that the DA was trying to talk a witness out of testifying. You know, and that evidence that Asia McLean gave was essentially uncontested. Uh, you know, they never put on anybody or offered any evidence to suggest what she said was not true. So, I, you know, I was baffled by that interview. Same. I just wonder what she thinks happened to... Ezra Mabel, Saban Burgess, Malcolm Bryant. There's all just oopsies. Nothing. Ha everything was right in the system. Everything worked the, how it should. Ritz did the right thing in all three of those cases and just happened to end up with innocent men in prison. I was going to say, has anybody sent her the Department of Justice report on the Baltimore Police Department? Because she might want to give that a read. Well, but I think on some level, because the Adnan Syed case didn't necessarily provide a larger narrative, I believe Islamophobia came into play to some degree, but it didn't tell the story of a guy mired in poverty, and that's why the system crushed him. It didn't show evidence of a larger story to her, at least in her mind. Do you think that maybe that's why she didn't feel like it resonated as a bigger story? This sort of goes back to John and Amelia, your discussion about objectivity. I think that Sarah, from everything I've seen from her, including this interview, is that she takes great pains to be what she considers to be even-handed and objective and is trying to give everyone a fair shake. And I mean, that's sort of the position I think that she's coming from, where she doesn't want to label this as a case of police or prosecutorial misconduct or where the system was broken, where she's trying to look at it from all angles and perspectives. And I think sometimes that can go too far in how she portrays it. But I think that that's my sense of what she's trying to do here. As to the sort of the idea of it not being connected to sort of a larger story, I think one thing that's really important for people to start sort of taking away from cases like this, like Joey's case, like Stephen Avery's case, all the many sort of black men and women who have been killed by police all across the board, all the various sort of problems that we see within law enforcement and within the criminal justice system is that there are these big, big stories, these huge, shocking front page stories. But there's also, you know, these kinds of misconduct occur in sort of minor ways regularly all the time. That's what's so interesting about the Department of Justice report for Baltimore is that it really sort of reveals how... Yes, there are these big cases where they are on the cover of newspapers and they get a lot of attention, but there are everyday sort of injustices that are inflicted upon common citizens. I have a friend who lives in Massachusetts, a white guy who's never been arrested for anything, who had, you know, a really terrible experience over a routine traffic stop that 
turned into him getting a year probation on what was ultimately an unlawful arrest. I mean, you know, you can ask lots of people. People have what is considered sort of small bad experiences with law enforcement, but they're nevertheless emblematic, I think, of just different types of misconduct that have kind of become procedure in some ways. So, yeah, there may not be connected to a larger story, but maybe that is the larger story. And nevertheless, it's all still really important. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make it any less true. Well, yes, very often the justice system fails in these tiny ways, but it has real ramifications for people. Yes. You know, the sort of things that you have to miss work because you have to go to court dates. Um, You know, in the case of my friend, he was put in a cell, wasn't even allowed to attend his own hearing. So he couldn't even, he had prepared like all these legal arguments for why certain charges should be thrown out. And he wasn't even allowed to attend because he wasn't able to, they, for whatever reason, made him do pee testing and he wasn't able to do it. And so they immediately picked him up and put him in a cell. He couldn't even attend his own hearing. And then the judge wasn't going to let him out unless he took a deal, you know, little things like that just completely get in the way of a person's right to due process. Uh, Well, I wanted to get around to talking about uh, episode 14 of Undisclosed. And in this episode, we saw how it seemed that the uh, aggressive investigation of the crime seemed to be having an effect on the witness accounts of the evidence. And in Susan's interview with Corey Jacobs, it seemed as though his evidence of Joey's, uh, I don't know what you would call it, because he didn't even confess to the crime, really. He was talking about the crime. It seemed so general that I'm trying to figure out what on earth he said at the trial that made that seem damning. And I was curious, Susan, what exactly did he testify to at the trial, considering that his evidence seemed so meager? He did say he heard Joey confess to the crime. His description is pretty vague, but basically he says that he heard Joey talking about how they, with the no name specified exactly at that point, waited for Isaac at the college, followed him out of Floyd College, then pulled up behind him and shot him, and then went to Mark Free's house. That'll become important when we get to the cell tower pings, because as Susan notes, his testimony is that Joey and presumably accomplice were able to arrive at Floyd College and wait on Isaac to leave before following him. So we'll definitely follow up on that more in terms of the timing for that. Well, the amount of time you expect to take him to get there. Right. Yeah, and as we noted, the story that he tells also is that after the shooting that Joey goes up to Mark Free's house, which, again, we'll get to the timing more specifically, but that really doesn't work out. Yeah. I found it really fascinating how coming into the conversation with you, Susan, he was like, oh, yeah. Joey definitely bragged about killing Isaac. And by the end, he was like, I don't know, maybe he was talking about a John Wayne movie. What? Those are completely different things. It's amazing how he went from one extreme to this totally other sort of perspective on his own sort of testimony, his own sort of memory of this event in what seems like a fairly short conversation. Well, he didn't have full information about what happened at the trial. I think if he'd known in advance that he was, in fact, the only person who'd ever heard Joey confess. He would have been more prepared for that. But he didn't know. So I think that did, he had a genuine reaction to that. It seemed to me he really was shocked and suddenly realized, oh, wait, my actions did have a very serious effect on someone else's life. Whereas before, he had convinced himself that actually, you know what, maybe I was trying to get reward money that should have gone to someone else. But he was confessing to people. So the fact I'm saying it, that doesn't harm anyone. There's no real damage from that. It's like he, you know, his own sort of view on what he overheard Joey saying. So initially, you know, it was very much a confession. 
based on his sort of, he had this idea that so many other people were testifying to the fact that Joey was going around bragging. And then once he found out, wait a second, I was the only one who was saying that? Hold on. It's like he suddenly realized, wait, maybe, did I really think he was bragging? And he started to doubt his own sort of outlook on whatever it was he overheard. Yeah, that's assuming he overheard anything. I'm very skeptical that ever occurred. Well, actually, I got a question from social media. This is from Bo Quillian, who says a couple of things. Joey feels like Corey was coached, but I kind of wonder. He referred Susan to the trial transcript more than once that we heard. That seems odd for a layperson and also makes me wonder, does he know that they don't have the trial audio, only the transcript? Has he been listening to the podcast to know that? I am not certain. Yeah, I was actually curious how you uh, initiated contact with Corey. Is he aware of the podcast? Has he listened to it? I think he has to be aware. He did not tell me that he was, but I got a sense he was aware something was happening and being reported on Joey's case. Well, he definitely knew it was being reported on. I told him who we were and what we were doing. But he didn't say if he'd actually listened or not. There was a lot of things that Corey said that, to me, raised serious questions about the source of his information, either from back in 2000 or more recently. You heard at one point he talked about how he'd initially heard it was a shotgun. Well, he couldn't tell me who he heard that from or how he got that rumor. But... It's interesting that the uh, shotgun thing, that's not a rumor that was widespread. In fact, the only people that I can find who ever spoke about a shotgun being involved were A, Stanley Sutton himself, as you heard in the Kelly Robinson tape, and B, Buddy Vines. He's the guy that got an assault conviction for assaulting Joey um, in 99, was not Joey's biggest fan, to put it very, very, very mildly, and later tells Sutton, oh yeah, uh, Joey pulled a shotgun on me and a friend this one time, or possibly two times. And Corey, no, he played down his friendship to Buddy. I don't know if they are friends. I have no knowledge of that. But to me, it says that Corey's either talking to Buddy Vines about what Buddy's telling Sutton, or Sutton's telling him directly. And I lean towards the latter because you also hear Corey talk about not knowing there was a 22 pistol and a 9mm involved. Well, that's very specific and very oddly specific because that's a theory, the 22 pistol, that's a theory that was pretty much a police-only theory. So you never know how rumors work, but to me, that's a very clear indication that Corey's knowledge is coming directly from Sutton himself. Here's a question about Sutton. I'm just getting the vibe from Sutton that he really has it out for Joey like separate from this case. Like he has a personal sort of beef with him. And like even Joey seems to sort of suggest that Sutton has it out for him for some reason. Have you guys talked with him a little bit more about that? Did they have like an existing sort of, I don't know, feud or had he encountered him before? No, I mean, he had encountered him before. I mean, yes, I get the sense too. It does seem like Sutton really had something more personal going on, but other than the fact that he thought Joey had called in a fake bomb threat and like told him that, oh, we're going to take you away and send you to foster care if you don't tell us right now and all that. But that was when Joey was much younger. And then Joey did briefly have a thing with his stepdaughter, which I guess could also be possibly some source of animosity. I don't really buy that, though. So it's hard to say what was motivating Sutton other than perhaps a like total, total absolute certainty in Joey's guilt that overwhelmed all the evidence he was actually seeing. Well, also, you pointed out that the police officer's first impression, part of their first impression of Joey was provided by the cell phone evidence, which was wrong, which was in error. And I was curious about that because it's interesting that a similar thing happened in Adnan's case where the police got cell phone evidence and clearly made investigative assumptions based on that. 
that stuck with them for months. They never changed their minds, even when clearly the evidence was not as important as they thought originally. Yeah, I mean, this stuff isn't, it was not intended for law enforcement. So my question is, do you think it was a function of cell phone evidence being relatively new at that time? This is the year 2000. Obviously, Anand's case happened in 1999. So being that this is a fairly new technology for police officers to use in an evidentiary fashion, do you think that that's why they kept getting the wrong documents? Like in Anand Syed's case, they only got the call logs for the outgoing calls. You know, obviously, incoming calls would have provided a huge amount of information. But to our knowledge, we don't know if they ever even requested There are law enforcement officers now with more experience with this sort of thing. But in general, I don't think it's because it was a new technology then. I think you have similar situations going on today and that this was not intended for law enforcement purposes. It was not intended to be something that a cop could pick up and say, oh, look, so-and-so is guilty. It's just an internal billing record or just a log of some internal event that they monitor for their own purposes. And there's never a reason for them to add a disclaimer that says, oh, by the way, when you request this, you're only going to get the calls that were made on this network. And if your suspect made calls on you know, another network, it's not going to show up here. That's just not the purpose of those documents. So anytime you've got officers using a technology they don't understand and records they don't understand, but they assume they understand, it's going to lead to these kind of troubles with the investigation. Now, Susan, at one point, it sounded like you were dubious that none of the reward money was ever paid. But I'm curious, do you have any information that says that there was a reward paid, or are you just dubious that the idea of it never getting paid? Well, first of all, the money, supposedly, again, this is all just what they were saying. So we know the $3,000 that Governor Barnes offered, that does not seem to have been paid out. The records there show that in order to claim it, you have to wait till all the appeals are done, so it would be 2003, and then, ten, well, I guess by that point, Lee Patterson would have had to write in and say, hey, give the money out. That didn't happen. That's still leaves $17,000 that we don't know where it went. And for apparently $7,000 at least, and that money was put from many anonymous and small donors apparently into a bank account. So it had to go somewhere, unless they just still have it sitting there in some bank account waiting to be paid out to some witness now, which I don't see why that would have happened. That money had to go somewhere. Someone got it. Well, there's the money from Georgia Power too, which I don't know exactly how that works, but they put in all that money. So and the question would be, if it didn't go to anyone, shouldn't there be accounting showing it went back to Georgia Power at some point, the Hammond plant where Isaac's father worked? Well, it would seem to me sometimes in those situations you pledge money and then you wait until somebody actually collects it and then you give it out. So the money doesn't necessarily move anywhere. You know, you say, okay, this is what I'm willing to pay. But according to the reports here, there was an account opened in a bank. So there actually was money put into an account at the Greater Rome Bank. And I had another question. It's unclear to me, how was Sutton able to get Joey actually arrested? I know there was a restraining order for the situation with Aslan, but then it appeared he got arrested, and it wasn't clear to me exactly what he was arrested for. He was arrested for stalking, and that never actually, that, that charge kind of disappeared. I suspect what happened is later on when they got Joey's phone records, they could see all the calls that... It was only for his house, so they they couldn't see Aslan's phone calls. But his records show that she was calling him, too. So when they had a stalking charge based on him supposedly calling her like without her wanting him to, that sort of undermines the evidence for that charge. I guess that's just my guess for why they never went anywhere with it. They didn't actually pursue it beyond holding Joey for 72 hours. But what happened was there was an incident in early-ish to mid-August after which Sutton somehow started talking to one of Aslan's relatives. 
I do not know how Aslan's aunt and Sutton got into contact, but they did. And she apparently like recorded a phone call with Joey, according to Sutton's notes, and gave it to Sutton. I don't know anything more about that. If it really exists, it's gone. And she started like opening lines of communication between the Hoags and Sutton. And at some point, Sutton goes down to Polk County and talks to the officers there, and they arrange for a stalking warrant to be taken out, which is then brought back to Rome to arrest Joey on. Listeners of Undisclosed, we know some among you are business owners or HR professionals. And we've got a question for you. Are you hiring? And if so, do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? So if you own a small business or work in HR, you know that it's never enough just to post your job on one website. If you want to find that perfect candidate, you've got to post your job on all the top job sites. And now you can. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites, including social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter lets you find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. All you got to do is post once and watch your qualified candidates roll into ZipRecruiter. The website is beautiful. It's easy to use. Employers, I know sometimes that putting jobs on these websites can be a daunting task, but I'm telling you, after navigating the ZipRecruiter website, it's so simple. And the time savings, that's really the kicker. You get your job advertised on 100 plus job boards all by using just one service. ZipRecruiter is great because it means no juggling emails or calls to your office. You can quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. So listeners of Undisclosed, find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. Right now, Undisclosed listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash Undisclosed. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Undisclosed. One more time, try it for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash Undisclosed. I got a, um, a social media question from uh, at Happily Reha, and she says, what was the point of the cops telling Kelly that Joey was such a bad guy? And what was the timing between Aslan's restraining order, Joey dating Kelly, and the cops meeting with Kelly? Well, it wasn't actually a restraining order. I think I misspoke when I was talking at some point, one of the clips. It was a stalking charge based on, like, phone calls. And uh, the only, like, incident it mentions happened a month before the charge was actually done. So it's kind of unclear what the full base is supposed to be. But anyway, that was like in August. And then I think in early September is when Joey met Kelly and they began dating. And then a month later, in uh, late October, is when the police went to Kelly's parents' house and talked to her there. Yeah, so we got a lot of questions from people saying, is it common for police officers to give dating advice? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> no. I, not to my knowledge. I have not encountered that before. <laughs> I mean, what's the goal there, though? Like, you know, I get the police obviously talking to Aslan because she was dating Joey at the time that all of this was going down. But like, what's the point of talking to Kelly? She wasn't around during the actual, you know, alleged like the murder. And so she would have no knowledge, apparently, you know, of what happened. It's like Claire said, it wasn't an investigation. It was a PR campaign. It was to isolate Joey. And if they could get Kelly on board with their theory of like he's an abuser, Hey, that helped her case. And, and you hear them at one point tell Kelly, we have three or four girls who are saying once they break up with him, he turns really possessive and abusive. Well, one of them's obviously Brianne, who we also hear from the tape has been calling Kelly to tell her to warn her about what Joey's going to do to her. And the other one is probably Aslan, although Aslan herself, as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem like that came from her mouth necessarily, at least not to the way that 
sentences portray it. But as for these other girls, I think it's pretty clear that was just made up because none of Joy's other exes ever said that. So it's not clear where Sutton could have gotten this from other than, you know, making it all up. It's interesting because, I mean, this sort of goes back to what we said with Corey. It seems the strategy here probably was to go to these witnesses and make it sound as if, oh, everyone is saying that Joey confessed and everyone that Joey dated said he's a terrible guy. There's a podcast that Malcolm Gladwell did this year called Revisionist History, and there was an episode about why the underhanded free throw never took hold. And he cites this psychological paper on these threshold models of collective behavior. And the question is, how do certain things take hold and other things don't take hold? And how do you sort of tip the scales, et cetera? And it seems like in this case, maybe in many cases involving sort of small towns where you have the investigators and they're planting this theory, whereas one person in themselves, Corey Jacobs himself, might not have come forward and said that Joey confessed. But if he's being told, or in this case, if Kelly's being told, all these other people are saying something similar, then that might, in fact, influence the way that they perceive events that have experienced and might change the way that they present those to the police or a jury. And the case was flexible. They could take bits and pieces of each story they got, keep the ones that helped them and throw away the ones that didn't. And it didn't seem to cost them anything at trial. Because then we have... Corey, in his very first statement, coming forward with the story that this guy, Booney, is the actual shooter. And, of course, that's totally gone by trial. He says, only mentions Mark Free as someone who might have been involved. But the fact that he initially said someone else, or heard a rumor of someone else, was never used to undermine his credibility. And it's not totally clear who he was referring to, because the guy he mentions in the notes is Booney Chris Wade, which is two different people. Booney is a guy named James Wade, and his cousin is Chris Wade. And James Wade has since passed away, but I actually spoke to Chris Wade about this, and he was shocked. I think his first words to me were like, if this guy was naming me as a shooter in a murder case to Sutton, and I've talked to Sutton plenty of times about other cases, but never this one, why did Sutton never come to me and ask me about it? How could I have been named as the shooter in a major murder case and no cop ever asked me about it? And I told him, I don't know. I can't explain that either. That's why I was trying to talk to him. And... um. And he was saying, well, asking, well, why didn't, if uh, Corey Jacobs had first said it was Booney Chris Wade who did the shooting, and then at trial says Mark Free, how could he have gotten convicted? And why didn't Joey just start representing his damn self? Because there's no way you can get convicted when that happens. Which is, you know, not a bad point, unfortunately. I did want to ask about Joey's attorneys. I imagine that your guys are going to focus on this on an episode maybe coming up soon, but I'm just so curious how his attorneys would cross-examine a witness like Corey, who seemed to be pretty blatant about the fact that, you know, he was motivated, even though he was sort of coerced into testifying by Sutton, that his motivation for saying what he knew was the money. And, you know, it seems like there were a number of things that Joey's attorneys could have impeached him on. I mean, the fact that he said that he and Joey went to the same school and Joey never went to that school. Like, how did they, his attorneys, sort of do in terms of cross-examining witnesses like that? The school thing is one of the few areas they did try and impeach him on, which, you know, it's interesting. But I think that I didn't realize it, so I'm sure the jury didn't either. What they were pointing out wasn't just that Corey was wrong about them going to school together. It was that Corey was wrong about this idea he would have recognized Joey. I mean, casually like that. And again, Corey did acknowledge, like, he's like, yeah, I ultimately came for it because they were offering me money. So that's out there. You don't need to. That's a fact. So you can't just, like, try and attack him on that and then say, okay, he wanted money. It's done. 
So what they should have done is just done their research and looked into the facts, what he was saying. And they should have talked to Jody Jordan, the guy that Corey says he was with when Joey started confessing, because Jody Jordan does not remotely corroborate what Corey says. They should have looked into things like the whole Boonie story. They should look into things like this whole shotgun story more and figure out what the origin of that was. But by just trying to hammer Corey's character and not actually like showing how, for instance, he says he walked away from this discussion before Joey ever said what happened after the shooting. And then at trial, he says, oh, yeah, Joey said they went to Mark Free's house. I mean, that's a pretty big inconsistency. But that never comes up. I find it interesting, this whole idea that Joey or that anybody who really did commit a murder would like be standing in a Home Depot parking lot, just bragging about it to people who knew the victim or knew of the victim. Like, are there, I feel like this is something that's occurred in other cases too. Oh, so-and-so was bragging about how they committed the murder. Is it ever turned out that somebody who bragged about committing a murder actually committed a murder? Like, that just seems like something you wouldn't do. (laughs) Especially not when there's billboards, like basically over the street you're on announcing $10,000 to $20,000 for information leading to an arrest. And it's kind of fascinating because... I don't know if any of you are following the Breakdown podcast or Justin yes. Harris, but that was also a Home Depot parking lot where he actually worked. And uh, I noted on Twitter the similarities because the trial just started in this most recent episode of Breakdown. It's these witnesses talking about the demeanor of Justin Ross Harris after finding his child dead in a hot car. And you see how their stories evolve. And it's very similar to Mr. Hogue in this case and how his initial stories of how Joey seems completely normal uh, on the night of January 11th. And then all of a sudden that later on gets changed to a very different demeanor that's used to implicate him. It's, uh, it was striking to see the similarities in the two cases. Yeah, that's what I find so hard about this kind of thing, because the minute you start to even think about whether or not somebody is associated with a horrible crime, about whether they could have killed somebody or whatever, and then you start thinking about their behavior, like, it's so difficult not to suddenly be suspicious of things that are really not suspicious at all. I mean, I find myself doing that, you know, I don't do it anymore, but early on when I would sort of look at the Adnan case, I'd be like, well, he did this. Is that suspicious? Am I being duped? Am I an idiot? Like my, you know, but it's all that kind of stuff that he had never been associated with, you know, Hayes murder would never in a million years have occurred to me to consider suspicious behavior. So I guess I'm wondering how the police are able to sort of determine whether or not a witness's statements about somebody's behavior, you know, in light of a terrible crime is suspicious or not, or that they're describing it in a way that's actually really truly genuine to how it was. Like, how do you, te- I mean, is that why witness testimony is sometimes taken to a certain degree with a grain of salt? They determine it based on whether or not the person they're fingering matches the suspect that they're looking at, as far as I can tell. I mean, it, the thing is, if someone's guilty, everything they do is suspicious. Like everything immediately after the crime it is connected to that. So sure, you can view it in a suspicious light, but those same behaviors are not unique to a guilty person like they're I mean yes if the person did it it could be uh, related to that the fact they were nervous could be related to that but people are nervous all the time and like I'm thinking most of the time they didn't actually kill anyone mm-hmm. uh, or you can conversely use you know <laughs> if they're not nervous you can use that against them in court you can say he went to buy a cup of coffee right after this what you know what a cold-hearted brutal killer <laughs> you know um, and if your day changes at all that's that's yeah but then do you never then how do you if you're an investigator do you not look at behavior at all because it's so easily you know, misconstrued. I mean, to go back to Colin's, you know, atonement reference. It's like everything else, though. It's just one more data point. 
I've got a Twitter question from Jay Slipchi, um, which says, Aslan's father testifies that Joey told her his friend was killed. But did Aslan herself ever admit to hearing this? No, Aslan's never said at any point that she heard anything like that. At the trial, Tammy Colson just blames everything on the fact that Aslan was sick. And she puts it sick as a dog, just sick, sick, sick. So sick she can't apparently, you know, hear a bullet going off when she's on the phone with Joey. And so sick that when Joey tells her, oh, my friend just got killed, she doesn't even hear it when he's sitting on her bed. I'm not sure. My impression actually is that Aslan was not even aware necessarily that her dad had ever testified that he'd heard Joey say this. That's amazing to me. Since she was never called, she could have attended the trial because... No, it, no, she was called. She testified at both trials. Oh, she, wait, she testified at both could, trials, so, and she wasn't asked yeah, about that's why this she aspect? couldn't sit. Well, yes, but she didn't know that it meant her dad had testified to that. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just amazing to me within a family that that kind of thing could be overlooked, you know, uh, but I guess it doesn't make for great small talk uh, over over dinner. I just thought it was so fascinating, the fact that this case is so fueled by gossip early on, people talking about who did what, how much Joey hated Isaac, yada, yada, yada. But then it sounds like once it got actually serious, like Joey was arrested and going to trial and a number of these people were going to be testifying, like it's almost like they didn't, they almost sort of avoided talking about what they all said in court. It's like, it, you know, like the fact that Corey had no idea that nobody else was saying that Joey bragged. There were many different sort of like segments of society that were witnesses at the trial and they all didn't know each other. So you have like the one group of like people close to Joey and Brienne. And it seems like they were talking a lot constantly throughout it based on the notes that we have in their trial testimonies, like Jeremy Schuler, Adam Elrod, Chad Redden and Brienne were definitely in contact, but they wouldn't have any knowledge of what, say, Corey Jacobs would be saying. Um, not someone they hung with, really, not someone they would have, it's just not a source of information they would have had access to. So all they're doing is repeating the same rumors they've always heard all along, with no idea of how those rumors are being added together into the case that Tammy Colson ultimately brought. All right, and I guess they're not like requesting trial transcripts to like see what else went down on all the other days they weren't there. Like I would if I was called yeah. to testify in a case. <laughs> like what actually happened? I mean, Asa never knew that the whole idea was that no, Joey hadn't just been driving down to Cedartown, saw Isaac and like popped off a shot and, you know, went about his way. Because to her, from her perspective and her phone calls with Joey and him arriving at her house, that's like how it had to go down because that's the only thing that makes any sense. She didn't know someone saw a blue car heading northbound just before Isaac was shot. And she didn't know about the phone calls, right, with Joey actually being in Alabama, which is, of course, the revelation when Claire and you disclosed that to her. Yeah, she, I mean, Sutton told her. He showed her phone records. So there are actual phone records from the phone company that show the calls Joey was making. And, oh, look, there aren't any calls from Alabama the day of the murder or the day after, even though Joey says he was in Alabama both days. Yeah. But it really speaks to how to like I'm convinced that in the Anand Syed case that the police confronted Jay with the evidence, the cell phone evidence that they had against Adnan, because I don't personally believe Jay's account at all anymore. But I do believe that it's possible that he thought that at the time the police definitely knew or had superior information that pointed to Adnan's guilt, that he may well have not been, you know, trying to finger somebody he knew to be innocent. And I think it's a you know a common phenomena where people just assume that the police, the authorities, the courts have superior information. They know the deal better than I do, so you know I can just sort of sit back and let justice take its course. And if you don't, then you could be the next one fingered for the crime from Jay's perspective. We see that with, I mean, explicitly in the interview of Debbie, 
the friend of him, Adnan, where essentially she goes from being good friends to Adnan thinking he's innocent and then is asked, well, you changed your view and now you think he's guilty. And what's the reason? And she says, well, the police are at school and they're telling my friends and me that they have all this evidence and you can easily see how an impressionable young person, whether it's in Adnan's case or in Joey's case, that they think that the police, if they're going to arrest someone, they have the right guy and that can influence the way that they remember and perceive events. Yeah. I had another question from Twitter. This is from M. Rudolph Comedy saying, everyone heard rumors about what happened and who did it, but what was Joey hearing at this time? Joey was hearing that Paul did it. And this will be a big part of next episode, but... Paul and Joey had a mutual friend named Josh, who was telling both of them that the other one had confessed to the murder. Wow. This is Josh Flemister. Yes. Yes. Okay. So Paul Allen, yeah, Joey was pointing the finger at Paul Allen because based on what he was hearing from other people, but you know, there are other people aside from Josh who said that they heard Paul confess to the murder. But again, there's multiple people who claim to have heard from a friend of a friend that Joey had confessed to someone. So these like third hand confessions that, you know, you don't have names for them, but supposedly they are made, they're going all over the place. So yeah, and also that, that gets used as evidence against Joey as well, because they claim the fact that he pointed the finger at someone else was evidence he was actually guilty. But again, if that's evidence of guilt, then there are a lot of people in Rome guilty. It's time to check in now with one of our most delicious sponsors, Blue Apron. Now, Blue Apron only has one mission, and that's to make incredible home cooking accessible to everybody. So whether you have never stepped a foot in the kitchen, have no idea what to do with a pot or a pan, or you're like me, you've been cooking for years, but still end up getting takeout three or four times a week, because you know what? It takes time to go to the grocery store, get the ingredients you need, find the recipe, and put it all together. Blue Apron will work for you. And that's because for less than $10 per meal per person, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes, along with ingredients that are already portioned out right to your front door, fresh every week, so you can make delicious home-cooked meals in a snap. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, and by the way, all ingredients are not created equal, you end up making incredible meals. And Blue Apron only delivers the best ingredients because they have established partnerships with over 150 farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the state. They get seafood that's sourced sustainably, the beef, chicken, and pork comes from responsibly raised animals, and the produce comes from regenerative farming practices. And they take these fantastic ingredients and turn them into seasonal, delicious, diverse recipes from all around the world. For example, a few of the many offerings they have this month in October are crispy chicken Milanese with warm Brussels sprouts, celery, and potato salad, roast pork steam bun, with black garlic mayonnaise and spicy cabbage slaw and heck I don't even eat pork but that sounds delicious and Thai green curry chicken and squash with yu choy jasmine rice and cashews you get to decide what meals you want to come to your door each week and you know what you don't even have to get the deliveries each week it's totally customizable and flexible so do yourself a favor and check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com up again that's blueapron.com up blue apron a better way to cook I actually have one more question. This is from B. Lee Cree, who says, in cases like Joey's, why don't defendants waive jury trials more often? My understanding is that a case that is very weak on evidence would be much better decided by a judge who understands the process completely. The jury in general can be so easily swayed by emotion and or misunderstanding of the rules of law. That's something that's a great question, and it really is a matter of preference. There 
isn't really great state data, but there is federal data. There was a, a study done, the classic American jury study, and that said in federal cases, pretty much the conviction rates are about the same with jury trial versus judge trial, about three quarters, about 75% of cases. I think it was a little bit lower for judges, maybe like 73%. So in essence, statistically, you're about the same. And then the question is, right, is this a case where you want the learned, more objective judge deciding from the bench or the men and women in the jury box? And I think why a lot of people opt for the jury trial is if you can convince even one of those jurors to be a holdout, that's a hung jury and it's a mistrial. Whereas with a judge, it's that that one person there. And a lot of people think they can sort of see through BS and they're able to make the decision. And so I think it's complicated and people will give you different advice as to what to do. But I think in the end of the day, my impression is you're pretty much about the same statistically going with a judge versus a jury. Is that an option in every state? for somebody who's been charged with a crime? Uh, well, it, it's an option. It depends on jurisdiction whether you need to get the consent of the prosecutor and the court. So like in the federal level, for instance, the only way you're going to have a bench trial, assuming it's a case where the Sixth Amendment right is triggered, is if the defense, the prosecution, and the judge all sign off on it being a bench trial. Oh, okay. I've never heard of this option, uh, and I'm embarrassed to say it. I think a pretty ballsy defendant to just say, you know what, yeah, I'll take my chance that this judge, you know, doesn't hate me yet. You know, (laughs) Um, I could see why people would not opt for that unless they had a lawyer who was really good at making the case for it. And you can imagine how that would completely change the way that a lawyer operates in the courtroom where as it's now if you piss the judge off by making a bunch of objections or doing things, I mean, that's going to be somewhat damaging for your career and all that, but you still have the jury that's making the decision. Whereas if it's a bench trial, it's that same person you're objecting to and maybe acting in ways that might anger them. And then that's ultimately the arbiter of facts. So it's interesting uh, in terms of that decision. And in this case, you've got a judge in a small town who was dealing with Tammy Colston and Stanley Sutton every day of his professional life. Unless you have knowledge, like, precise knowledge otherwise, it is safe to assume that they have a working relationship and it is not going to be likely that they're going to feel comfortable declaring that someone here is massively telling falsehoods to the court. So you're going to lose that credibility battle just going in before you said a word. Yeah. And that's the basis for the Sixth Amendment right, by the way, is it, you know, go back to the founders. It is the jury is the buffer against the potentially biased judge who, again, yeah, is dealing with these prosecutors and police officers on a daily basis. It also seems like from a spectator's perspective, like if you're actually watching a trial where it's a bench trial, I feel like you don't get as kind of like a clear perspective on a case. I sometimes just feel like certain things get kind of glossed over or, or sort of run through kind of quickly with a judge because they understand certain procedures and they understand, you know, certain things so they can kind of like rush through them. Whereas as a spectator anyway, a jury trial to me is sort of more interesting because even though you're as a spectator or not on the jury, you're sort of getting you know, your outlook on the case is sort of similar in the sense that like your understanding of the law and everything like that. I, I don't know. I appreciate a jury trial more as a spectator from that perspective. Yeah, and another aspect of that, too, is, you know, the interesting thing when you have character evidence episode and we've dealt with hearsay and all that is, you know, in a typical trial, though it didn't happen here, the judge is going to filter out a lot of evidence and the jury is never going to hear it. And the legal thinking in terms of a bench trial is, oh, well, the judge hears that the defendant failed a polygraph or has all this bad character evidence and he's going to filter that up, but he's still going to hear it. 
And the question is, to what extent a judge can really compartmentalize and say, mm -hmm. this evidence is inadmissible, but he obviously still read it or saw the video or heard about the polygraph. So that's part of the thinking, too, is that the jury, in many cases, is never even going to hear the evidence, whereas the judge, of course, in a bench trial will hear it and deem it inadmissible. But it's tough to sort of remove that taint. In this case here, we have the judges don't look into more later, but we know the judge told them that he found certain witnesses credible that would have damned Joey. So, I mean, Joey would have lost in a bench trial, it's safe to say. Also, aren't uh, judges often elected officials? In Georgia, yes, they are, which is in a crazy system that needs to be fixed, but that's a different topic. <laughs> Georgia has some issues with judges. Like, Georgia has some bad, like, they've made some bad choices in their judges there, which is, I feel like it's a good example, the whole state, as to why judges should not be elected in the first place. Um, well, you know, that's all I got. Amelia, did you have any more questions? I did kind of have one question about I'm just kind of curious how, now that you've been working on this case for quite a bit and you've spent a lot of time looking at how the police investigated it, how the sort of small town dynamics in Rome law enforcement and its residents compares to what you saw in the investigation of Adnan by Baltimore Police Department. Like, I don't know, I'm just kind of curious what things have stuck out in terms of similarities or differences and just the way the cases were approached. The Baltimore Police Department is a lot more efficient at this kind of deal. <laughs> they were much, much more organized about getting this stuff done, quickly closing it up. I mean, this case took a year for the Floyd County Police to uh, get an arrest. And it was a lot of kind of aimless interviewing random supposed witnesses that, you, you know, typically were, I mean, less than credibles putting it charitably. It was a lot harder for them. They were not as uh, experienced and quickly kind of uh, getting the evidence they need, closing it out, moving on to the next one. But then again, they've also only got like, you know, four or five murders a year to deal with, whereas Baltimore has not quite four or five hundred, but almost there. But other than that, the tactics are very similar. <laughs> uh, uh, do we have any other things that we wanted to touch on? Follow me on Twitter, XOAmelia. That's where I am spend my time doing most of my writing these days, so... And don't forget to check out the Undisclosed website for documents referenced in the episode and sometimes documents we didn't get to cover that episode, as well as transcripts. Um, for instance, we have a full attempted transcript of the Kelly Robinson recording, as well as the statements of all the people referenced. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here this week, Amelia. It's such a pleasure. Always great to you talk know. to you. Thank you so and much. If I get any information on how Thero actually sleeps, I will let you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and thank you, Colin and Susan, once again. I, I missed you guys. Good talking, John. We'll talk again soon. We have some uh, interesting things coming up on a couple fronts. Yes, indeed. Oh, Jeez. great. I am looking forward. Well, talk soon, guys. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Uh, And that wraps up another episode of The Addendum. I want to remind everyone, we are doing a live one of these things. That is right, a live record of the Undisclosed Addendum podcast. It'll be in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, November 17th at New America. So if you're anywhere nearby, I'm talking Richmond, Virginia, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, uh, <laughs> Philadelphia, come on down. You simply have no choice but to come and join us. Rabia and Susan will be there along with yours truly. Uh, and we'll be taking everybody's questions. So if you've had one burning and it's just too long to tweet, now is your chance. You can register at newamerica.org. Go to the events page and find Undisclosed, and we will see you there. Now, in 2008, the city of Detroit shut down its police crime lab after an audit found significant errors in the evaluation of evidence. Following the closure in 2009, the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office discovered 11,304 untested rape kits 
sitting in a Detroit Police Department storage facility. The rape kit backlog in Detroit represents one of the largest known backlogs in a city in the United States. When tested, DNA evidence contained inside rape kits is an invaluable investigative tool to solve and prevent crime. It can identify an unknown assailant, reveal serial offenders, and bring opportunities for justice and healing to survivors. To accomplish these things, however, rape kits must be tested. And since 2008, Detroit has begun eliminating its backlog with a deeply committed team of community partners, including prosecutors, members of law enforcement, researchers, city officials, and advocates. End the Backlog is a program of the Joyful Heart Foundation, a national nonprofit organization founded by actress and activist Mariska Hargitay, with the mission to heal, educate, and empower survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, and child abuse, and to shed light into the darkness that surrounds those issues. So you can donate to End the Backlog at endthebacklog.org. And I want to thank Zofia Perspikowski for sending us this link. Fans can discuss the show on Twitter at hashtag undisclosed or at hashtag justice for Joey. Uh, if you want to tag questions for future addenda, you can use the hashtag UD addendum, or you can tweet them directly at me at, at Mr. John Cryer. Also, I'm still looking at worthy organizations. I think I've got like two slots left. So if you've got one for the wrongfully convicted, please let me know, and I will consider donating and highlighting them on the show. And as always, I don't know if you recall, but Susan mentioned that there are new case documents and photos posted at undisclosed-podcast.com, so do check it out. There's always interesting stuff there. You can follow Undisclosed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at the handle at UndisclosedPod, and also our key partner, the Georgia Innocence Project at at GA Innocence. Going to thank Hannah McCarthy. This was a toughie. Uh, had to phone this one in, and she just rolled with the punch. Thank you, Hannah, once again. And Rebecca Lavoie of Partners in Crime Media for our audio production. Lovin' Patrick Cortez for composing the new Addenda theme. Sounds great to me every week. And Mithil Telhan, our project manager, thank you so much for all the work you do. And once again, I hope to see you all on November 17th. Well, not all of you. That's an awful lot. There are millions of listeners to Undisclosed. Um, but a good portion of you. It would be great to see you in Washington, D.C. And thanks again for listening. Did Stanley Sutton give his sister the nickname Pug? Because that sounds like something know. he would do. <laughs> it's so mean. My name is Sherry. I didn't realize that. I, I kept thinking like this, this bug or pug guy was someone. I couldn't figure out who it was. And I talked to Corey. He's like, no, Pug is Sherry. That's my aunt, uh, Sutton's sister. I bet you anything Stanley Sutton gave his sister that nickname when they were kids because he was mean. He was like, your nickname's Pug. I bet you anything. <laughs> I love that you have a whole narrative in your oh, mind. I totally do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm picturing like little bully Stanley Sutton that's like a, you know, nine year old or whatever. I have no idea. I'm totally pulling this out of my butt. But <laughs> Well, I love that my favorite sentence from the previous episode was Booney is monkey's cousin. Uh, <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, that explains everything uh, that Booney is monkey's cousin. I personally uh, like the word doo doo, was my personal favorite. I laughed out loud when he talked about it. <laughs> Doo-doo. That was my favorite. Great.